there's a certain way it gives over, I guess, a tam v'reach, a feeling of Pesach. And it's very important, whatever, whatever we go ahead and we do. However, on the other hand, it's important to keep in mind how situations have changed and p- different people, different situations. And we have to try to understand what situations are, people are in. And by doing that, you have to look at what the halacha is and what the minag is or what the hanhag is of a certain family and try to come to a solution which would be comfortable and still retain that feeling of Pesach that everyone has from their youth. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. More than any other Jewish holiday, Pesach is associated with questions. That's obviously true for the Seder, but it's also true when it comes to the intense preparations that precede the Chag. Jewish law regarding cleaning for Pesach is very extensive, and the misconceptions are often very prevalent. For that reason, I'm proud to present a conversation with Rav Chaim Soloveitchik Shlita, where I presented to him what I think are some of the most common questions people ask as they prepare for Pesach. I thank Rav Chaim for generously giving his time and expertise, and I hope that this episode can serve as a valuable resource and guide as people throughout the Jewish world get ready for Zman Cherutenu. We'll get to that conversation momentarily. First, let me remind you to share this podcast, rate the Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for the Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. We also have started the Orthodox Conundrum YouTube channel, and this episode will be available there as well. The Orthodox Conundrum is looking for sponsors, either to promote your business or organization, or in somebody's honor or memory. If you would like to reach thousands of listeners every week, write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffee House podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way to reach hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. But if you want to start a podcast, you need to make sure that it's really good, both in terms of content and production values, so that you will be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. If you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people, or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool, or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds and thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality, and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com to learn how we can help you make a high-quality, effective, and entertaining podcast. Rav Chaim Soloveitchik made Aliyah over 25 years ago with his family and is the Rav of Kilat Or Shalom in Ramat Beit Shemesh. He has been inspiring students of all ages for over 35 years. Rav Chaim has been a Rebbe at Rishit Yerushalayim since making Aliyah and teaches at Yeshivat Or Moshe, a high school in Beit Shemesh. Please note that when Rav Chaim refers to his father, he's speaking of Rav Aharon Soloveitchik Zatzal, and when he mentions his uncle, he's referring to Rav Yosef Dov Soloveitchik Zatzal. Rav Chaim Soloveitchik, thank you very much for joining me today 
on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. I'm hoping that this podcast will serve as a resource for people who have questions regarding preparations for Pesach. It goes without saying that a podcast is not a forum where someone should get psak. This conversation should obviously be seen as a guide rather than a definitive statement on all Hilchot Pesach. And very importantly, I know, Rav Chaim, you had some hesitations about giving your opinions regarding Hilchot Pesach in a public forum like this because you didn't want people to think that just because you have a particular halachic opinion in a given case that may be more lenient or more strict than somebody else, that you're necessarily discounting other opinions. So I want to make clear at the outset that while you're explaining how you tell people in your kahila how you think they should act, other kilot that follow different minhagim or have a different halachic decisor may have different opinions and they are not necessarily wrong. And as I understand it, the mandate lagdil Torah ladira means to accept that multiple halachic stances can all be correct. And along those lines, I want to emphasize how important it is for every person to have a Rav whom he or she is comfortable consulting and who knows about their personal situation. And you mentioned to me before we went on the air of Chaim that knowing the person who's asking the question is a key component in giving Pesach and explaining what the halacha is. And I know that you wanted to emphasize that point. Uh, for sure, there's no question about that because a lot of times when a Shaila comes up, especially in regard to Hilchus Pesach, as I'll explain, it's very important to understand the nature of the family, and what's going on in the situation. As I'm sure one of the topics that will probably come up is probably in regard to kidney oats. And when you're talking about a regular Ashkenazi family who is at home the whole time, there's one, maybe one stance in regard to kidney oats. But let's say you have a man who um, who married a Sephardi girl and has to go to his wife's, he's going to his wife's family for some Pesach. Obviously, there has to be a different approach. It doesn't necessarily mean that kidney oats is mutter for him, but Maybe he has to see the kalim and taruvos kitniot in a different light, as opposed to someone who stays at home the whole Pesach and only is only involved with Ashkenazim whole Pesach. And that's why it's very important on many levels to have a rab who understands the family and the person and the situation surrounding that person. Okay, and before we get into specifics, and we are going to deal with some very specific situations, which are commonly asked, I know that you also wanted to talk a little bit about the difference between what has to be done and what should ideally be done. Could you explain what you mean by that? So in regard to Pesach, I think it's important to understand that for whatever reason, we've, there are many chumros because of chumros that have been passed down over generations. And maybe at some point, these chumros might have had a reason, and maybe these chumros were only accepted in order to highlight the chumrah of this or chametz, and to make sure that things are very careful. And for that reason, there's a question of sometimes what do you have to do? Because sometimes situations change. And sometimes there's a question of what should you do? What are we doing for generations? Just to give an example. Um, when I was younger, I don't know if you heard this in Newton, Massachusetts, but in Chicago, there was always this very famous line, we don't mesh on Pesach. And we don't mesh on Pesach means on Pesach, we eat at home, we don't go to other houses. Today, I hardly hear that line just from a few old timers. Okay, now, even though I'm hitting 60, I'm not necessarily an old timer. If you'll hear from people who are old timers, that they don't mesh, they don't go to people's houses. And where does this come from? This is a throwback to previous times from earlier days when um, you couldn't find Pesach products. There were times when, even in America, when you had to prepare all the chicken and goose fat before Pesach because you couldn't even find cartel Pesach oil. So in general, many houses, I'm not even talking about the 70s, uh, when I was growing up, 
the 60s, 50s, 40s, people were, everyone was starting from scratch. If everyone was starting from scratch, this idea of not meshing because everyone's food that they had was only in their house and therefore they want to go to somebody else's house. But today to say you don't mesh when everyone is buying products, whether it's um, uh, the OU or it's any, or it's the CRC or it's the Chavke or any other cautious organization in America or in Eretz Israel, we're all in a certain sense not meshing by the fact that we're buying products. However, there's something which has been passed down, maybe on a different level, not meshing. For example, I don't think there's a problem of going out to a restaurant on Chalamoy Pesach, but I have never done that because it wasn't necessary, especially Chalamoy is very, very short. So why should I go out to a restaurant? And along with that is the idea that I was raised. We don't go out to eat on, on Pesach. So there's a certain way it gives over, I guess, a tam vareach, a feeling of Pesach. And it's very important, whatever, whatever we go ahead and we do. However, on the other hand, it's important to keep in mind how situations have changed and different people, different situations, and we have to try to understand what situations our people are in. And by doing that, you have to look at what the halacha is and what the minag is or what the anhag is of a certain family and try to come to a solution which would be comfortable and still retain that feeling of Pesach that everyone has from their youth. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Now I'd like to get into some specific questions. We'll start off with food and cleaning in general. So here are some questions which we put together, and I think they really reached into a lot of different areas that people are bothered by or don't know what to do on Pesach. So the first question is crumbs and how seriously we need to take the situation and the issue of crumbs. For example, does the floor need to be vacuumed or can we rely on bitl chametz? Because obviously crumbs are less than a kazais. First of all, if people want to spring clean before Pesach because it gives a certain fresh feeling and it feels more like Pesach, there's no problem with that. It's very beautiful. And sometimes I feel guilty myself if I haven't gone through my file cabinet to go through everything because you feel like the house is not spring clean for Pesach to have the fresh feeling. On the other hand, the person has to know what's going on in their life, what they have to do. Um, so crumbs are bottle, and therefore there's no reason to go ahead and to vacuum the carpets because crumbs are definitely bottle. However, however, obviously... A person has to be careful if there are any crumbs around the place where it might fall into food. And that's why you have to be very careful. And that's why even though you say you have a crumb in one of the shelves in the kitchen, there's a very small shash that might fall into food, I'd be very careful, or even in the dining room. However, in your bedrooms, uh, in your sitting room, in your study, we are not going to be eating on Pesach. So then, of course, a person does not have to vacuum. That being said, I would just add, for some people... If they would go ahead on Pesach and they would see a crumb on the floor, it might disturb them at a certain level, at a certain emotional need. So again, um, there's nothing wrong with vacuuming. It's a very nice idea. It might enhance someone's Pesach. But if a person feels it's too much and they don't want to vacuum, there would be no chiyav. The crumbs are obviously bottled. Okay. The next question I have is, and we're just going to go through them one by one. Is there a need to buy milk or eggs or anything else for that matter before Pesach starts? The two issues that are involved, you know, when it comes to eggs, I'm not even sure it's an issue anymore. You want to make sure that there's no chametz stuck, that maybe there's chicken feed, but I haven't seen that in years. The issue with buying chicken and eggs before Pesach starts is that sometimes they go ahead and they feed the uh, cows and the chickens uh, chametz, food which is chametz. And, um, and therefore the milk would be a zevizegorim, um, so let me explain. So what happens is that the milk is coming out from the cow and that's coming out from the chicken is being produced by the chicken itself, by the cow itself, of course. 
But however, there's also the chametz that's involved. That would be zeva zegarim. And even though many shittas might hold, you know, it's all bottle. The ran um, is machmir, and therefore the chadchila person should try to buy the milk and eggs that don't have ashkach for pesach before pesach for that reason, um, in order to be mekayim the ran shita. Now, obviously, if for whatever reason a person was not able to do it, there'd be no problem. The chadchila a person should definitely try to be machmir for that. Again, um, this is a chumra pesach that is actually based on a shita's rishon, and it's and it's important. Now, I know in Eretz Yisrael, I remember I even remember from America as a child that milk does have Ashkach for Pesach. And I think maybe, I'm not sure about eggs, but they do have Ashkach for Pesach. So therefore, it would not be a problem. I remember I, I was a teenager, so I was Machman and Chalvi Yisrael. So there was a one store in Chicago where you could buy Chalvi Yisrael back in those days. It was called the Milk Pail. The store doesn't exist anymore. And, if you, and it, the milk delivery came once or twice a week. And I remember once going to a store before Pesach and seeing it says CRC on the milk, right? It's, oh, wow, it's exciting. I don't have to go to Milk Pail to buy Chalvi Yisrael, but really it was just Hashkach for Pesach, it wasn't called Yisrael. So a person definitely should try to try to get milk before Pesach and eggs, or to try to go ahead and to get uh, milk and eggs that have Hashkach have for Pesach. Okay, great. How about medicines? Do medicines require a Hashkach for Pesach? And if not, the second half would be, do medicines that have flavor require a Hashkach for Pesach? Like, for example, Advil tablets have a coating on them. Right. The bottom line is like this. First of all, I would just say anything which is not royal achilas kelev does not require shkach for Pesach. Now, what does not what what is not royal achilas kelev in terms of medicine? So, the determining factor is a medicine which is meant to swallow and not true and not true is definitely considered nisam achilas kelev, and there is no problem, and a person could take that medicine on Pesach. A medicine which has a good taste to it and it's chametz that you definitely should go ahead and look into and find out you know, what the story is. Now, sometimes a problem comes up um, where you might have medicine that has a flavor and you don't know if it's kashal Pesach or not. So then when it comes to medicines that's necessary, you can check into and you can see are there chametz ingredients, not chametz ingredients, even though we would never go ahead and we would never try to buy food that way. You can talk to the pharmacist to see what's going on. And I've called the pharmacist to me, know, this is mamish chametz, this is okay. Uh, so again, pills that you swallow if necessary, you can take them in Pesach without a problem. Pills that you chew, you really have to make sure that it's kosher of Pesach. When you say pills that you swallow, does that include Advil, which has a coating on it, which is like a sugar coating on it? In theory, let's, let's say Rechamets. So I, I think that if it's something which actually, as we say, a dog would eat, it has a sugar coating to make it palatable and easy to swallow, right? Right. Yeah, so I would assume that if something has a sugar coating on it, you would have to go ahead and you would have to uh, check it out and make sure it's kosher of Pesach. Okay. The next question is on that same topic, the idea of royal lechila kelev, something which a dog would eat. How do you determine nifsal mechilas kelev, something which a dog won't eat? As I told you before we went on the air, I mentioned we're not veterinarians, at least I'm not, and I don't really know what a dog would eat. I've also heard some people say it's not really what a dog would eat. If you can distill a perfume and the ingredients would technically be something which a dog would eat, then it's also not kosher for Pesach. The bottom line is, what is the determining factor? And can you give some examples of products that just don't need hechsher because they're not something a dog would eat? I'll tell you this. So what I try to do is I try to give my dog some food to eat and I'll see what she says. The problem is she, <laughs> she's too mahmir. She thinks everything's right. <laughs> That's the problem. I'm just kidding. I'm just, I, wouldn't, I would never do that. I think that there are definitely certain types of food that you can go in and say uh, are not royal achilas kelv. There are certain things that you know you can you can look and you can smell 
and you realize, oh my gosh, the smell is, is so distasteful and so abhorrent, you'd say you would never, you would never go and eat it. To give an example, back in the old days, um, Moshe Feinstein, and I mentioned the old days on purpose, and my uncle, Rav Shabir, used to say that toothpaste is not royal achilles kelev. And as a matter of fact, at that time, someone once told my uncle, but Rebbe, my dog eats toothpaste. And the rub is very famously noted for saying in Yiddish, you can't bring a raya from a sugar and a hunt. He felt that this crazy. Uh, today, that would be a different story because today there's so many types of toothpaste out there and they all have very good flavors. Something that would, you can tell, if you smell it, and you feel, wow, no one would touch this. I think, you know, you, you, can, you can realize a dog wouldn't touch it either. However, let's say, for example, deodorant, uh, stick deodorant. Um, is not a problem. That definitely is not Royal Achilles Kelev. Who would eat stick deodorant? They say, you know, when it comes to perfumes, so I heard that Rav Heinemann, he actually uh, used to taste the perfume to see how it tasted. And my father was a bit more machmer in the issue. He felt that anything liquidy that did not have a, uh, uh, a smell that would send people away, he felt should be machmer because he actually felt that sometimes someone who's drunk looking for something to drink would drink anything that's wickedly without calling it. And he, that, of course, for that reason, he actually was um, extreme, extremely, extremely uh, machmir. I would say, by the way, that mouthwash, um, you really probably should get checked out because mouthwash is, has alcohol and uh, a child could definitely, definitely drink some. I remember as uh, when I was a young parent, we were living in Chutzaretz. I walked into the bedroom with a carpet and we found a bottle of scope was almost empty and my baby was next to the bottle of scope, a year, a year old. And we weren't sure if she drank some, didn't drink some, and we had to take her to the hospital. And um, in the end of the day, it turned out she didn't drink, but the hospital didn't say to us, oh, she would never drink mouthwash. You know, the, uh, um, and they took a blood test to make sure that the, that the alcohol level was, was normal, which it was. But anything which is not disgusting when it, comes to, when it comes to liquid, my father held that you have to really check it, you have to be careful about. And certain things like a salad, it said deodorant, certain types of soap, Right, so for sure, you don't have to go ahead and and to worry that it, it might be royal achilas kelev. That's the direction I would take when it comes to that. What about a spray deodorant, which is technically a liquid and smells okay? No one's going to run away from that. Yeah, so I know that my father was machmer when it came to a deodorant that was liquid, a roll-on. By spray, I never asked, but I assumed he was machmer because it was a liquid thing. You can never get it out. Um, I think others are makil. There are definitely different opinions. I think. That in general, when it comes to deodorant, as I said, I try to use a stick. And I know as, as a child, I always, uh, we used to always find the deodorant that Tashkacha company said was okay. But again, I'm not saying there are different opinions when it comes to deodorant also. And I, my father had to be machmo when it came to liquid deodorant. How about getting a new lipstick or a new chapstick? Is that necessary? I think just wipe it off, make sure there's no crumbs on there, then it's okay. But again, if someone feels that that's what makes their Pesach, then of course they should carry on and do it. But just wipe it off and it's fine. Okay. Now, here's a very common question I know. Canola oil and kidney oat. Is canola oil a problem on Pesach? So, um, by the way, there are definitely different minhagim. Um, in general, I think the minhag of most of the world is considered canola oil a problem. When I moved to Ramat Shemesh many years ago, I had this chus of being very close to our specters of Chorol Levracha. And he at that time told me that you can use canola oil on Pesach. And he actually explained to me he said that canola oil comes from rapeseed. He said rapeseed really cannot be eaten in its raw form, which I checked into. And therefore, anything which cannot be in its raw form, he said, would, would not be an iser kidneyus, but the shemen that comes out of it. 
And an example he gave me, he said, cottonseed oil, Shemin Kutna. I really haven't seen Ovashkoch here in Israel, but in America, you always used to use cottonseed oil all the time. And by the way, some kilos don't use cottonseed oil for the same reason, because cotton obviously is not edible. So oil that comes from it would be okay. And the canola oil also, for, that's how we explain why canola oil would be okay to use. And I've, I've always used canola oil since then, based on the Epsak. And I actually found out subsequently that there are kilos in the world. For example, I heard that in, uh, in England, there are keyless that do not use, that will use canola oil. And I also heard in South Africa there are. I heard from someone reliable. So again, it sounds like there's, there's different minhagim when it comes to this. And um, my hanhaga, based on what I heard from our inspector at that time, is to use canola oil, which, by the way, doesn't only include canola oil. It also includes a lift it, which is in the chocolates. A lot of the chocolates you'll find, la'ochle canola, la'ochle lift it. And it says that because there are those who are machmir on lift it and canola and those who are not. And for that reason, I will, in my house, we use both the canola oil and the lifted. Then I'll ask another question about kidneyot in that case. At what point, on the era of Pesach, do kidneyot become forbidden? Meaning, if one does not eat kidneyot, if one's Ashkenazi and that's their minug, is it at the same time that one is not allowed to eat regular chametz? And second of all, related to that, does cooking kidneyot in a pot mean that the pot isn't kosher for Pesach? So in regard to the halacha of at what point do kidneyot become? So I think that on some level, we actually consider kidneyot, not when it comes to the pot, again, there could be other minhagim. We general, I, we, I eat kidneyot, I think until the Zman is or Hametz. I would actually have to check again, but that's my impression, which by the way, would be different in regard to egg matz. I can come back to that in a few minutes if you want, but kidneyot, amachma from the Zman is or Hametz. In regard to pots, so again, and I think this is the reason why I'd be machin regard from the Zman Hametz also. So again, you're dealing with different shilas. So the chavchila, should we use different pots for kidneyos and not kidneyos? For sure, there's no question about it. We definitely should use it. So let's say, for example, you have somebody in the house that has a heterodic kidneyos. Either, for whatever reason, they're vegan, they have a special diet because of health issues. You have a son-in-law that's coming to your house that happens to be spirity. He wants to have kidneyos. So I would definitely give him his own pot. Again, that's just because of the chavchila, how we consider it, in order to understand that this is, this is a minute and we keep the minute. However, if someone goes ahead and somebody would cook kidneyos uh, in a pot on Pesach by mistake, so again, Evan, we don't consider the pot to be considered chametzdik. We don't consider the pot to be chametzdik. The custom is when it comes to kidneyos to hold the pot for 24 hours. So just, just as I'm talking, I'm thinking, and why, why do I remember that? Because let's say, for example, in a Shabbos or Pesach. In Shabbos or Pesach, so you can have rice, and every Pesach morning, and everyone wants to have rice the last moment. And also, um, when the last day of Pesach, some Friday, everyone wants to have rice in Isruchag. So there, the minig is that, in general, what I've told people, when it's Shabbos, Ere Pesach, um, and you want to have rice, you should really make the rice in an aluminum foil pan, right? So this way, you're not ha- using a pot that was the kidneys with it um, within 24 hours. However, when um, the last day of Pesach, some Friday, then the minig is already, you can actually use a Pesach pot because by the next year, but will it be after 24 hours? So therefore, it's better, I would say, if kidneyos is made in the pot, the pot does not become treif, but because of the chum of kidneyos, a person should go ahead and a person should wait 24 hours and use the pot again. And uh, I think you should not eat kidneyos after this manis or hummus. And since you mentioned egg matzah on Erev Pesach, let's go into that now. Okay. Egg matzah, I think all Ashkenazim are machmir. 
it's a sheet that we shown that we're choshesh, that maybe, in other words, eggs in the matzah or wine in the matzah is not going to become chametz. However, we're choshesh, maybe a little water fell in, and because of that Ashkenazim, our machmer, not to eat matzah on Pesach. However, that being said, even for Ashkenazim, we allow zakenim and cholim and katanim to eat it. So for that reason, we're making the Aruch HaShulchan actually says, holds, you can eat egg matzah until Shoah Siris on Arab Pesach, until the afternoon. Great. This is a question which relates back to the carpets, and you sort of answered it, but I think I'd go through it anyway. How important is it for books to be checked individually, or can somebody rely on Bittel, particularly if you have no intention of bringing that book to the table? So my father used to be very machmir not to bring books to the table for 30 days before Pesach. 30 days before Pesach, he'd bring a savor to the table during the meal. He would tell us, I remember it was 30 days before Pesach, don't bring, don't bring books to the meal. Um, I would be very careful of books that you're going to bring to, that, that you're going to bring to the table on Pesach, and books that you've brought to the table before while you're eating. I, I does not refer to most svarim. In other words, if you were to ask me in my house which svarim would I want to check on before Pesach that I might bring to the table, I would say it's probably my chumer svarim, and maybe the mesech that I'm learning, especially now I'm learning meseches psachim. I would definitely check that out. But um, if it's not going to bring a book that you're going to bring to the table on Pesach, it's definitely okay near the food. If you're going to bring it to the table on Pesach, I would definitely, I would definitely check it out uh, before Pesach. I want to talk about selling chametz before Pesach because although it technically works, some people don't like to use it. They say it's a loophole that one shouldn't rely on. Other people say, no, the opposite. You, Dafka, you specifically should try to use it because if you miss something, it's good that you sold it. It sort of takes care of it as an added benefit, as an added protection. So first of all, what's your opinion about selling chametz? And is it the sort of thing that one should use for chametz gum or real chametz, the kachila, as a first mode of defense? Again, I, I, I think here there are definitely many different minhagim, and I think it depends on how much chametz gum a person has. Okay, If a person has you know, one bottle of whiskey that's open and then it's worth $25, okay, spill it out. It's not a big deal. Some people have very extensive liquor cabinets that are full of whiskey that can be five, six hundred, eight $800. I think then certainly you can rely on chiras chametz. It is a legal loophole. But if you think about it, it's not the worst legal loophole we rely on in halacha. And I'll tell you, my father used to arrange mechiras chametz for everyone, right? Even though he himself did not keep any chametz in the house, but even though he did not keep any chametz in the house, he would still sell the chametz in case there was something in the house. That being said, there were things he did not like to get involved with. He did not like to get involved with hetariska because he felt that hetariska um, is a legal loophole that's not really so as serious as it could be. Um, if you learn the halachas. Uh, but a chametz, he, he would he would arrange everybody. I remember arranging for Sprites, of course, in the business. If a person wants to rely on it, they could rely upon it. And a person wants to make a decision whether or not they should. They should see how much chametz they have left in the house and then make and then make that call what they should do. I, I would just mention that one thing that I'm certainly not mocked on, when I go to the store after Pesach, I will buy chametz that was sold after Pesach without a problem. The only reason why I enjoy buying chametz that was uh, nitchan and made after Pesach because it definitely tastes better. It's fresher. There's nothing like those fresh <laughs> pretzels you get once a year. Uh, but that being said, um, I, I don't think it's necessary for a person to go ahead um, and to uh, not to buy things that were sold over Pesach. And I even know people who 
have sold chametz, their own chametz. When they go to the store, they're mocked, but only to buy chametz that was made nitchan after Pesach. Yeah, a person has to understand the reasons behind it. Whatever, it makes it, whatever a person feels comfortable with, they could. Um, this is something that's been done, I don't know if for 60 years, 100 years, but it's something very common for regular people to do, and therefore, certainly it's okay. And a person should decide. I would just, I, I think that besides the liquor cabinet, maybe it's better not to, to sell you know, those things are not worth that much money. For example, you know, you have a third of a package of cookies, right? Mm-hmm. But if you have a full package of cookies, I can understand why a person would want to sell it. Okay. Then continuing the question about selling, what if somebody's going away for Pesach? They will not be home at all on Pesach the entire time. Some people simply close their house up, lock it up, but they don't even bother cleaning. They just sell it and that's it. Do you think that's proper or do you think that they should do some cleaning? I think a person has to do a badika on their house. That's 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 the issue. So some people do is some people will sell their whole house except for one room and do badika on one room. Um, sometimes it's very it's very difficult to convince people to not sell the whole house. And I understand it. So I always tell people if they're going to go ahead and sell the whole house, they should really do mechiras to gimel. I don't arrange mechiras to gimel. Just it's just it's not um, uh, it's not with my uh, ability to do it right now. Just to explain what you mean by Mechirat Yud Gimel, Mechirat Yud Gimel means selling the chametz a day earlier than it normally is sold, selling it the day before Erev Pesach, which means that by the night of B'dikat Chametz, when you check for chametz, the house has already been sold, and accordingly, because it's not yours anymore, there's no obligation to check that house for chametz. But it's better to definitely do B'dikat Chametz and the whole house before you go, because that's the kind of chametz, and that's the best thing to do. But if someone can't, all right, so then... Let them try to uh, uh, to do a vidika on one or two rooms and sell the rest of the house. But they have to know that if they do that, they don't walk into the house on Pesach. Um, but again, it's also important to keep in mind, what are you looking for in Vidika's chametz? If you're looking for crumbs, it's much more difficult. Looking for big chametz, that's where it becomes much easier. So if you keep in mind what you have to look for, so then it might be easier to do Vidika's chametz on the whole house. Except to somebody, you know, um, you have a, a kitchen cabinet, put your chametz into the kitchen cabinet, tell the chametz in the kitchen cabinet, and you know where to look, so it shouldn't be so difficult. So it's better to do badika on the house. Just make the badika a little bit easier for yourself. What about roommates? How about roommates who, for example, they're four roommates and they own the food together and someone wants to throw it out, someone else says, no, I want to sell it. Just in terms of navigating that, what's the halachic procedure they should use? Listen, I, I think what you can do is um, if a person can go ahead and give it to his roommate and say, okay, this is totally all yours. This is all yours. And then if he gives it belay Shalem, he wants to give back for a Pesach. So then that's okay. That's, that's, that's the way I would do it. I wouldn't. Um, and then I, that I person sells it, in other words. And that person sells it. And he wants to give back to a Pesach. And give, he can give back to you after Pesach. Good. How about getting a car washed? Is it enough to rely on those Pesach cleanings that at least around here in Ramat Beit Shemesh we see, and in Israel they certainly have them, or even a regular car wash in the United States inside and out? Or does the owner of the car afterwards need to go through thoroughly to make sure there are no Cheerios on the floor or something like that? I think that if they do a good job, it depends on how many Cheerios you have. <laughs> but if it's somebody who is, I think it's somebody who is Jewish, understands the halacha, it's definitely okay. If it's somebody that, um, that, that, you know, not Jewish, they might understand, I would definitely make a quick check. And I'm assuming this is a question you get reasonably often. If somebody says, I don't know if something requires a hechsher for Pesach, but it needs a special certification that's kosher for Pesach, coffee, for example, or this food or that food, what do you recommend they do? How do people find out which foods do not require a special certification for Pesach? 
do what I do. So there are certain things that are on the back of my mind, but I just go to uh, the kosher websites and they very clearly say what requires hashkacha, does not require hashkacha, and um, they're, they're great. So I, sometimes I look on for people they ask me. In general, I'm not really crazy about, you know, asking Google a Shiloh. When it comes to this, you can ask Google. You know, what does the CRC say? Are you allowed to eat this? Is this the Ashkacha or is not the Ashkacha? Great. All right. Now, I want to ask you a few questions about koshering also. So my first question is, do you need to dismantle pots and pans before koshering? You know, the handle is often a separate piece that's been screwed on. So does it have to be taken apart before they're koshered? If it's something where you could, that chametz might have gotten in, then you have to go ahead and you have to take it apart to get the chametz out. Right? But if you know there's certain handles that you know that there's no chametz in there, right? So then you don't have to worry about taking apart the handle. How about a stain on a pan? I don't mean a stain that's sticking out, which presumably wouldn't work, but just a stained pot or pan where you can see a discoloration. That's okay. That's just a stain. You know, try to do what you can. If it's just a stain, the things, you know, pots get stained, people get stained, floors get stained. And as long as you don't feel it, you just know it's a stain, it's okay. But if you feel a a bump there, then obviously not. That would be different. Then obviously not, for sure. Okay. How about a gas stove? A gas stove with with ranges on it. How does one kosher that stove? There are a few ways to kosher it. But the way we kosher the stove in our house is we we take the grates or we put the grates into the self-clean oven. Now, here's a warning that when you put grates into a self-clean oven, they might get discolored. However, for our peace of mind, um, we don't really care about discoloring. It adds to the flavor of a kosher kitchen. We put it into the self-clean oven and the grates are koshered. In terms of the of the burners, you go ahead and you turn the burners on for half an hour, you know, each, and then that's fine. I'm not, that, that, even, that might even be Mitzad Chumra. 15 minutes should probably be enough. Um, if you do not want to put your grates into a self-clean oven, you do not have a self-clean oven, so then the way to do it is I would turn each burner on with the grates for uh, half an hour. And then for the last five minutes to put some type of pot over the fire, and that's going to cause the fire to spread. As a matter of fact, uh, this is what this is something I, I, I've seen on the websites, but I actually heard this from my father, and he said he learned that from his mother. So his mother was Kashmir Kitchens. I'm not sure we're talking about worse already, but certainly in America, that's what, that's what she taught you. It helps the fire spread for the last five minutes, and that would kosher the grates. And the first 25 minutes, the fire's just on the highest setting? Yeah. Right, right. Okay. yes, yes. That's what my father used to do it. Now, it could be 50 minutes enough. Again, I just know that um, uh, that's what my father used to say. Um, and uh, this is something that we have to look at, at the website, see what the website say. My father used to say half an hour. You mentioned a uh, non-self-cleaning oven. So how does one kosher a non-self-cleaning oven? And when it comes to a non-self-cleaning oven, so you should know that there are many different opinions. So I'm not going to get into it in specific. So the best way to kosher is make sure it's totally clean. And then to turn it on to the highest temperature, obviously after 24 hours, before this minus or comets, I would say even, uh, uh, I, I don't know exact time, maybe for two hours, right? And let, let, it, let it burn out. The problem is that the grates, you're not able to really, you, you, the, the grates, you won't be able to have a leave on gummer. So for that reason, um, if you're going to kosher the oven that way, you should never put food on the grates on Pesach, directly on the grates on Pesach. Um, for those who don't like it, my understanding is Rav Nut says you can't kosher the grates unless you put the grates, you know, you do a Lieben Gomer. So there are many different opinions. My, my house, my mother used to actually have a case where she went in and she put the case inside the oven and then and then she just stopped using the oven on Pesach. So there are many different, there are many different ways to kosher the oven, many different opinions. 
And uh, I would advise everyone to speak to their Rav in regard to this issue, what they should do. But, you know, there are those who hold, it's based on my Uncle Shita, that if you clean out the oven and you wait 24 hours, you leave it on to the highest temperature for two hours, then you can use the oven on Pesach. Let me ask you another question about the 24-hour rule. If I'm koshering things by pouring hot water on them, like a counter, is the cleat in which I put the hot water, for example, a little urn or something, does that have to also wait 24 hours before I heat it up or not? Well, if it's a cleat that has not been, it's a chamas to I would wait 24 hours before, before. But, but if you're talking about, let's say, a kumkum, right, which you never put chamas into, I wouldn't worry about it. But if it's a real chamas to I would I would wait 24 hours. Okay. My next question about koshering is, well, it's not really koshering, but it's about keeping a kosher kitchen, lining the refrigerator, which sometimes isn't so good for the refrigerator or the food inside of it. Does one have to line the refrigerator? As long as you make sure it's clean, you don't have to line the refrigerator. If you're going to put food directly on the shelf of the refrigerator, make sure the place you put it on is totally clean and it's not a problem. How often do we put food directly on the refrigerator shelf? Obviously, you want to make sure that your vegetable and your fruit bin are spotless clean. And um, the person still doesn't feel comfortable. They, you know, then they can line it. I remember, I remember uh, sitting at the Tish, the Boston Rebbe, um, uh, the one who's living in Mabit Jemesh, and Hasidim peel their vegetables, their, all their fruits. They won't eat apple peels on Pesach. That's their Chumrah. So just make sure that you should clean it very well. There's not need to be lined. And just make sure that if you put food directly on it, that on the refrigerator, that, just, that, that is 100% clean. How about koshering a metal sink? How does one do that? So the way you kosher metal sink is you have to wait 24 hours, make sure it's clean, and you pour boiling hot water all over the metal sink and all over the faucet. And then uh, once you do that, you can use the metal sink on, on, on Pesach. Okay, how about dishwashers? Is there a way to kosher dishwashers for Pesach? So when it comes to dishwashers, uh, there's a big machlokas. And again, this is something which I'm going to tell people that they should speak to their, their, their own rav. There are those who are machmir. The velamid is definitely mekil. Um, you have to make sure you clean. That also depends what the dishwasher is made out of. Uh, some dishwashers have material that can't be koshered. But if the dishwasher is metal, plastic, my father held, could be koshered. Even though generally you don't kosher plastic, plastic could be koshered. Um, so according to melamid, if you clean the filter out and leave it out 24 hours, you can go ahead and you can kosher dishwasher. I heard from my father Again, in this issue, it's a big machlokas, but he felt that you should put it definitely through, through more than one cycle, maybe three cycles. Um, I remember last year, my wife told me that our dishwasher has a cycle. I forgot what it's called. It's a, it's a cycle which cleans the dishwasher out with very hot water. Definitely a great idea to use it there. But here, I would basically tell everyone to defer to their personal rough to ask the rough because there's a very big machlokas about it. Um, but there's definitely opinions, lakan, lakan. I would just mention, yeah, you didn't ask me about this, but it, it's a funny story. Um, many, many years ago, when I moved into Ramafi Chemish, Long time ago, so we our counters were made out of uh, Evan Kesar Caesar stone. Caesar stone is mostly stone, but a little plastic inside. Based on my father's shita, I'm not sure if I spoke to my father. I spoke to somebody else who was it so long ago, but I I, I koshered the counter, and then that was something which actually was not on the websites for a number of years. You can kosher it. Um, now the CRC is for many years. They have a website that you could kosher Caesar stone. You know, it's been more accepted. But I still remember. Many years ago, a lady living in her soul, a different community, not in Beit Shemesh, called me up, and she said to me, so I heard you said you can kosher Evan Kesar. I said, yes. She says, okay, but I said, you know, you have to ask your Rav, because there's different Piskei Lacha and different Gilos. So she said to me, you hold you can kosher Caesar stone, 
you're my rough. And I have to say, for the next few years, she kept calling me with Shilas. So again, again, this was a good example of something where you would have to go ahead and you would have to ask um, your personal rub, but there's definitely a machlokas out there. And, and um, uh, there are those who say yes and those who say no. For those who say yes, it means to run it through, basically you said three cycles or that super hot cycle, something like that. I would have to say that Ramalaman, I'm not sure if he says three cycles. My father, certain times years ago, said it was okay. Couldn't we get this wishes are different? I'm not sure what Malamed would say. Uh, but and if someone would ask me, I would say, based on Malamed, I would do three cycles. And if one of those cycles, the hot cycle, that would be very good. Rav Chaim, I'd like to ask you, what are some of the most common questions that you receive that we haven't asked today? And how do you answer them? And along with that, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about Hilchot Pesach? I think that when people are getting ready for Pesach, if you, you ask most of the questions. The truth is, you should know that usually the questions, when I see, receive a lot of questions, a lot of people have made Pesach over many, many years, many, many years. And for that reason, people are used to it. So you don't really have such common questions. I remember during the year of COVID, there were a lot of questions because people not Pesach before, all of a sudden were surprised, they have to make Pesach. Then, then there were a lot of questions. An interesting shout I do get when it comes to um, people buy new pots Pesach time. People ask, why have to kasher a pot? Pesach, the new pots, because they, they make the pots a certain way. And again, I looked into the Metzias and uh, I, I saw that you don't have to kasher new pots that you buy. But I, I can't say that there are, you know, I walk around and think, wow, this is a question that I get all the, to- I get, I get all the time. I, I would just mention that I, I think that one of the most common misconceptions when it comes to Pesach is not so common that people look at what they do and they think their way is the only way to do it, right? So let's say as an example, as an example, most people, I think, have hand matzah for the Seder, you know, and they don't realize that some people hold actually having machine matzah is better and it's, it's, it's a homer to have machine matzah. So I think that ex- expresses the idea that people think their way of doing it is really the only way and other ways are not necessarily correct. I remember actually the first time someone walked into my house and they saw that our counters weren't covered because we kashered the counters before Pesach. That's a misconception. So I think the biggest misconception is more, not specific, more general. People feel the way to go ahead and to keep Pesach is my way. And when they see someone do something different, they think, oh my gosh, what's, what's going on here? Right. Just a couple of more quick things just before we end it, Rav Chaim. In terms of not crumbs. But let's say, for example, Chabot's Gomor, that theoretically might be anywhere in some place, but there's no way you'll ever find it. Let's say, for example, it's underneath a bookshelf. Let's say you have little kids. It might have rolled underneath there a piece of candy or a cookie or a Cheerio, but it's not going to come out on its own. Is it necessary to go and search for them, or can Bittel be enough? Halacha is that you only have to go ahead and to check a place in Machlis and Bochamet, which is normal to put it down for a second. Something which rolls down is not a problem. To give an example... This year before Rosh Hashanah, I took Rosh Hashanah Machzorim out and I put it on top of the bookcase, which is connected to the wall. And then as I was taking down, my little art school Machzor fell behind the bookcase, which I know I'm not going to get out until I move. Okay? It's somewhere stuck in the wall. Baruch Hashem is down on the floor. So if a cookie falls in that area, you don't have to go at Number one, no one's going to get it. And number two, it's not a Machzor 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 However, I do want to mention that a place where someone could see I'm... Pesach, and you would think is not a makam you have to really check. I.e., if someone has children, and you would never think, like, why would there be a cookie in a sock drawer 
or why there would be a cookie in a key drawer, you have to go in and check that because children could put the chametz uh, into that drawer. I see. Rav Chaim, just one last thing I want to tell you. Based on what we said at the beginning, bringing us full circle, when you talked about not eating in other people's houses, my mother would never take anyone's food in our house on Pesach. She wouldn't accept it. It happened to be about 23, 24 years ago, my grandfather was nifter on Pesach, and we'd been away for Pesach. We came back to Boston for the Leviah, and then we're going to spend a night in the house. And someone wanted to bring over food. In fact, it was your brother-in-law, Rabbi Siegel. There was no food in the house. The house was completely empty and there. It was during Cholamoid Pesach. And my mother said, I'm not comfortable bringing food over. Rabbi Siegel said to my mother, he said, this is for my mother-in-law. Your mother-in-law, Shalom Rav Chaim, said, you can trust it. It's okay. <laughs> Even though we might take food, we might have a different approach, we still have to be on guard on some level because you never know, you never know what you're going to go ahead and what you're going to find. Okay, so... Okay. Rav Chaim, I really appreciate this. It was very important. I'm sure this will be a wonderful resource. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.